When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hi, this is Asla Pellet. And I'm Evan Novi williams and this is the F1 Takes Over Miami sports business podcast, The Sportacast. Asla Scott is still traveling on his way to Miami as we record this for the Formula One race down in Miami. You have written a lot on Sportico's website about the growth of F1. Why don't you walk us through kind of how big and and momentous a, a moment this actually is for F1 down in Miami this weekend? Thank you for having me uh, today and replacing the one and only Scott Sashnik. I'm going to do my best to... Um, fill his shoes. Um, To me, Formula One is very special. I remember, um, I think I was probably in middle or element, middle or high school, and I was collecting cards and watching Formula One. Um, And I remember we celebrated Formula One, the race's arrival. What country are you in at this point? I was still in Turkey, Turkey, in Istanbul. And Istanbul got, um, became a whole city. And that, you know, joy, happiness, and of course, influx of uh, money into the city was undeniable. It was very significant because back then, Turkey was a different country, different, you know, government and everything, but also it was a hub of culture and and, and business and, and a lot of other activities. So a lot of sports events were coming and very happy to use Istanbul's amazing um, setup. And I think <clears throat> we're seeing the same thing today in the United States. It's not surprising that Miami was added to the circuit uh, after the success of uh, Drive to Survive that brought a lot of eyeballs to Formula One, which wasn't that popular in in United States. And I think you know that better than me. Like here, we didn't really follow non-American drivers racing around the world Although Austin had a um, Grand Prix, and I think that had to do a lot with NASCAR connection of that region. But the rest of the the country, I don't think was, you know, paying any attention to Formula One. But seriously, Drive to Survive, Netflix series, uh, our culture of maybe like voyeurism and really finding out what's going on behind the scenes and very attractive, very interesting, very competitive drivers 
brought a lot of attention to the sport. And that's why we have the Miami race. And that's why we will have a race in Las Vegas next year. You're right. Yeah. The, America has been for so long has been a NASCAR racing culture, right? Which is obviously a very different style of racing and a, and a, and a kind of class of technology than what you see in F1. And that's changing a lot. You mentioned Austin, uh, a track that opened just in the past four or five years. Uh, we have a, a, a track here, as we're talking about here in Miami, which we'll get into. A quick trivia question for you, because I was shocked by this. There's 22 races on the F1 calendar this year. How many countries do you think F1 is going to more than once this year? I think we're, United States is the one, but also probably, um, well, I think Qatar, Abu Dhabi, they're all different countries, so I shouldn't, you know, count that, but they're very close to each other. Yeah. I think they're two in Italy. Yep. There you go. That's It's the United States and Italy. Uh, just to kind of give you a sense, as you mentioned, five or six years ago, this was a, essentially a non-property here in the U.S. And now in 2022, the United States is one of only two countries that, that, that F1 is racing in multiple times. And, and as you mentioned, there's a, there's a Las Vegas race coming in 2023 as well. So certainly a lot of opportunity here. Let, let's talk about Miami. One of the things that I've been shocked by, this is the first inaugural race down in, in Miami. Everybody in our industry seems to be going. It, it has captured, it, it, it's a Super Bowl in some ways, right? The, it, it's one of those events where almost everyone I talk to on the phone is either going or, or wishes that he or she were there. In, in such a short amount of time for something that's never been held before, it seems to have kind of catapulted to Super Bowl level, Final Four level of US-based sporting event that you kind of have to be at if you're somebody in this industry. It's amazing how quick that happened. That's so true. And I, we were just in LA for a Super Bowl, and I realized how many events that have nothing to do with <laughs> football happens around oh, yeah. um, Super Bowl. So imagine this one, it's in Miami. It is around the Dolphin Stadium. It is the first time uh, for Miamians, but also the fabulousness of this you know, track is um, going to attract, I think, you know, and, and probably amaze people who are there. And I was lucky enough that I was at the press um, release. I was receiving the press releases and I have been, you know, um, sent a lot of videos from the Miami people and what does it look like? It is so high and over the top <laughs> that you could actually come with your yacht, dock and watch the race from uh, your own, the comfort of your own. Yeah. That's so amazing. this is not just a race, a, a car race like the other ones. This is not only about sitting down and having a drink. This is about, you know, really, really premium um, packages, services and, and events that Miami is offering. And that's why it's probably attracting a lot of people because everybody wants to be associated with this event and the crowd, the eyeballs that it's bringing to to um, around the cars. And, and to put some of those that in context, I, I believe in, to, in in 2020, right before the pandemic, Miami hosted the Super Bowl. They estimated that about 200,000 people came to Miami for the Super Bowl. Uh, they're estimating that around 300,000 are going to be uh, coming to Miami tourists, out-of-towners for, for this weekend uh, in Miami for the F1 race. So we're talking about an extra 50% on top of what was there for the Super Bowl 
which we essentially in this industry and in, in, in the U.S. entertainment industry more broadly consider to be the biggest, certainly the biggest television event of the year and also one of the biggest in-person events of the year. I think that really underscores, and, and you're right, the in the same way that that hotels do these crazy packages and restaurants do these crazy packages, all of that seems to be happening in Miami this weekend, just at a larger scale and maybe just a wealthier scale just because of the clientele that we see for F1 relative to other U.S. sports. Yeah, I feel like I can compare this to the final of the World Cup final. You know, that's what happens. That's a better comparison, yeah. Um, Because, you know, like the prices go so much higher, like, you know, during the entire month, maybe you can get a hotel room in the host city or host country for like 150. But the final, when it's around the final time, it's like five folds or 10 folds. And uh, flights were, you know, much higher than a normal Miami. Also, this is not high season for Miami. I think that's another mm-hmm. important detail. This is when it rains in Miami, which will make the race more uh, interesting because you know how it's harder to drive when it's like slippery and rainy. Sure. So it's going to bring a lot of, you know, tension and I think um, an edge to the race. New pist, new beginnings for a lot of people and a lot of drivers going to like, I think Friday is more exciting in a way than Saturday because that's the first time they're going to drive around the new um, new pist. But also, um, I think, I mean, I've, I said I've been to any other Formula One races, but when you look at the the way it was structured, the the, the pist that they built around the Miami uh, Dolphin Stadium, there are many different sections for different things to do. Mm-hmm. Like um, almost every brand or every you know um, team has their own VIP sections in different you know levels of sophistication. Of course, like I said, the the, the marina, the you know a place to like swim and sunbathe. Like I don't think other races have this much or, to be honest. or other sporting events in America, right? This is most of the, the big high level events that we do are big stadium or big arena events that don't have outside of the Super Bowl really don't have that much kind of going on around it. I made the mistake uh, a couple weeks ago on this podcast of saying that I thought Las Vegas was the Monaco of the U.S. Uh, because of kind of the glitz and glamour <laughs> talking about F1. And Scott very quickly was like, I don't think that's right. It seems like Miami is maybe the perfect American city for this, right? It's changing a lot in the pandemic, a lot of the kind of web 3.0 and crypto <laughs> cryptocurrency and, and crypto capital uh, businesses are all moving down there or headquartered out there. Um, there's obviously the yacht culture that you're talking about. It's, it's, it, there are upscale parts of Miami, uh, on par with the most upscale places in the country. Miami also just feels like way more so than Austin feels like the perfect American city to be doing kind of the, the, the biggest F1 race that the country's ever seen. Yeah. It's also the, I would say the capital of Latin America, mm-hmm. um, in a way. And, you know, Artan Senna from Brazil, like a lot of Latin Americans are huge fans of formula one. So it's another, it's an easier destination for them to come and attend the event. And another important thing is last two years, what we know from the venture world, venture capital is also down in Miami. So like we're talking about a lot of people with a lot of money, a city that is growing exponentially and and getting, you know, and attracting people with, um, I think, you know, upper, upper and, you know, middle class to really 
upper class people. And it is the U.S. Uh, Riviera, like you said. And I think that makes a lot of sense. It's a great fit for this kind of competition, I think. So let's back up a little bit and talk more about F1 kind of more more broadly. Because again, the idea five years ago, if you told me I would be doing a, a podcast entirely dedicated to the, the major F1 race in, in, in America, I would kind of be shocked by that. This was a property that was struggling a bit in the in the mid 2010s, owned by CVC Capital. In 2016, Liberty Media paid about four and a half billion dollars to buy it, and very quickly kind of put its own stamp on what it wanted F1 to be. It was a focus on F1 as a digital social media product, which it felt like the prior owners maybe hadn't emphasized enough. There was, as we're discussing, an emphasis on its weekend events as massive big Super Bowl events where it's not just qualifying and racing, but it's also music coming down and, and theater and arts and all that stuff and make, making all of it kind of a big, big multi-day stage event. And they also made some rule changes, which I know you know about, that made the competition slightly uh, more narrow, right? Made it a, a little bit more dramatic, certainly more so than, than it had been. I think it's a really interesting kind of case study in how you can take a property that, albeit w- was very popular internationally, but can make a few changes that really kind of make it take off from a revenue standpoint. You know what I make, a, you know, weird comparison between Formula One and other um, entities like uh, EPL. Hmm. Like if you buy um, a competition, you can make anything with it. And one of the things that I think will make your product more attractive is bringing the competition back. So like not the same people winning over and over again. And that was the problem with Formula One. There were cars that were the teams and cars with bigger budgets would always win. And people were getting bored of that. Yeah, that's, they that's to terrible. See it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> they want to see someone new. They want to see that wheel to wheel, you know, 2021 Abu Dhabi, where step in versus, you know, Hamilton style, like crazy, you know, finals and where people want to get to that point of like, oh my God, what's going to happen? I don't know what's going to happen. I think that what Liberty's biggest, um, I think, uh, uh, victory but also, and, and some us. of that, real quick, some of that's just kind of uniquely American, right? Like the European soccer, as you mentioned, it does very well with a, a supremely imbalanced uh, set of talent. I think Bayern Munich, I was just reading, has won the Bundesliga twelve straight years at this point. There, European sports are structured in a very different way, whereas American sports, essentially outside baseball, we all have salary caps. There, there is a deliberate attempt to make things more uh, egalitarian and to raise the competitive balance. And F1 kind of, I think, moving in that direction is one of the reasons, I would say, that it is way more popular in the U.S. than it was. Yeah, I think that is the American touch, like you said. It is really, um, let's not leave it to um, luck. Let's just make sure everything is under our eye and we know what's going on and and. And, and again, like I think I have to emphasize again, maybe one more time, Liberty Media's collaboration with Netflix and mm-hmm. Drive to Survive. Yeah, this is a good time. Also, this is, I think, um, another important detail. You can bring, you can make the super cars, you can bring it to the cities where you know you're going to find an audience. But what happens after the race, that time, off time that we're all curious about? Because these, um, 
I think the drivers were not like soccer players. They were not like, they didn't have flashy lives that we were aware of, at least maybe a very small group who were like the super fans, you know, like there's the super fans, there's regular fans, and there are people who very randomly watch a sports event. I think Drive to Survive brought the bottom part to become super fans. And I mean, you said your partner watched it, you know, my partner who never watches anything on sports was so into it for a while. I was like, are you watching this like a soap opera? What is like, it is a soap opera with, you know, very exciting, you know, part of it, a very exciting sport event, but you don't have to like listen to the cars buzzing around. You're just actually listening to their conversation and the mechanic and the technical stuff, which I think we should talk about it even more in this episode, because I think they play uh, engineers are, I think, as as important, if not more than the drivers for this race. Yeah. If you have a, a property like F1 was where not a lot of Americans know it and not a lot of Americans recognize the names who are doing well, I think one of the ways you have to, if you want to make it more popular, one of the ways you have to do that is exactly what the Drive to Survive show did, which is what you're saying, which is make some of these name household names right my, my my partner as you mentioned she'd never watched an f1 race before she went down a rabbit hole consuming every danny ricardo <laughs> interview she could find partially because she thought he was attractive partially because she was kind of engrossed in the early seasons of his drama when he was a red bull racer i think that is a one of the great uh i'm not going to say tricks because it's obviously intentional but one of the great after effects of that drive to survive series is that yeah, all, all these athletes now, there's a lot of Americans now who who recognize them by face. If they turn on an F1 race, they have a general idea of, oh, I like this driver. I don't like this driver. This is the guy that threw his helmet at that guy. Like they knowing a lot of that backstory, which is kind of ingrained in the way that the NFL or the NBA is covered here is super valuable. And it's one of the reasons, Oslo, we're seeing every other major non non big five property in the U.S., is now rushing to get these shows done, right? There's PGA Tour is working on a, on, on a series with Netflix. Tennis, both the WTA and ATP. The Tour de France has something going. I, I've heard, I haven't watched it. I heard the, the World Surf League's documentary on Apple. Th- their documentary show is really good as well. I think everybody who was kind of in that class of individual sports or team sports that weren't top, top tier in the US is now realizing, oh, if we can highlight our athletes, highlight some of the drama that's going on between the competitions, there's a way that maybe we can catch some of that same, some of that same glow up that, that F1 has gotten in the past few years. Definitely. And think about all the brand partnerships you can bring to uh, a TV show. And like it, production is basically almost comes out to be free. You don't pay the actors. It's a reality show. Reality shows are super successful because you plug the brand, you plug the, you know, the marketing is super easy you don't have to pay, I don't think, that much money for something that these people are already doing. Um, and if you get their consent to share those very intimate moments, that's, you know, um, uh, that's where the ratings are. And ratings mean attention. And, and it really, like, it's a trickle-down economy. It gives, uh, actually provides a lot of people, aside from just the athlete, you know, he or she, she uh, herself. So, so, so I think that's important. F1's revenue last year, 2021, was about 
$1.14 billion, which is way less than the NHL for people who are curious about comparisons. It's about double what uh, what UFC is doing right now, just to give you kind of a, a scale of, of what this is as an international property. Obviously, one of the main ways they make money is TV rights, and the US TV rights are kind of fascinating. The NBC gave up on it more or less back in 2018 and more kind of handed it over to ESPN for, for, for pennies on the dollar. ESPN later extended that, but it expires at the end of this year, I believe. So in, in the middle of all this growth, F1 is going to get to hit the, the market in the U.S. from a TV standpoint um, at, at kind of the perfect time. I'm fascinated, Asla. What are your thoughts on where F1 ends up as a TV property next year? Do you see that ESPN and, and some kind of more legacy brand? Do you see that as Amazon or Netflix, a group that obviously has a, has, has a business relationship with, with F1 already? Where do you see the TV rights going next year? So I was wondering about the same topic. And we know that Netflix had a very horrible um, quarter. And we saw yeah. how much, like, what, 35 to 37% of the, the stock price. I mean, they lost 37 to 35% of their um, stock price. So one way of, and everyone says that, like, Netflix is lacking sports, uh, live sports content. And maybe that's where they can make up for their loss. So it will be a great fit if they're going to move in time and if they can afford it. Because I think when ESPN bought it to the pennies to the dollar, that era has changed. Agreed. There's going to be a new era. So, And two, it is a very specific sport to uh, produce live. It involves a lot of um, broadcasting experience and, and also equipment. You cannot just, you know, whoever is going to, if, it's not ESPN who already has a system in place. Whoever is going to try to uh, broadcast it, they need to, you know, really spend a lot of money to actually compete with Eurosport and ESPN, the two networks that have been producing and broadcasting this amazing race for a long time. Yeah, the Netflix's their, their co-CEOs have both said for a long time that live sports was not in their future. I would trust that only as far as the next time they come out and say that live <laughs> live sports might be in our future. Um, but I agree with you. I think the if you if you were Netflix and you wanted to dip a toe into live rights, doing so with F1 again when you have so many people on your platform that already seem to care about it in some ways, and maybe even some really innovative ways of pairing the show and the live broadcast together in split screen or whatever it is, smarter people than me can figure that out. But it does cer certainly seem like if there was anything that was going to get Netflix to dip a toe in that water, uh, F1 actually seems like maybe a pretty interesting place where they can try that, particularly because unlike a lot of other U.S streaming and tech companies, they, Netflix has a, a massive audience in places like South America, which you were talking about, where there's already a big F1 audience as well. It is kind of a uniquely global property in, in a lot of key specific areas where Netflix really cares. Yeah. And going back to Liberty's revenues, and I think another important detail to mention is host city fees. Hmm. I think that, that that's where yeah, the walk money us comes that. from. What, is that, what does that look like? I'm um, curious. I think... You know, when a city becomes like a candidate city to host uh, the race, and I think last year one of the discussions was, you know, Jeddah race, and then you have Abu Dhabi and you have Qatar's, you know, Doha. First of all, there was uh, tension between these three uh, kingdoms mm. for a while, and, and Qatar wasn't getting 
uh, a race, which audience in Qatar is huge. And they're like, we have the World Cup, you know, we want the the, the parallel to that. They really wanted um, a Formula One race. So what happened behind closed doors? I'm not so sure, but I'm assuming <laughs> there was a lot of checks being written for Formula One to eventually come to Doha. And I think that also like last year they started, this year it's going to be World Cup. And then, you know, it's going to be right after, right before they're going to have the Formula One race. And then then the race goes around in the best season for the Middle East. We're watching it in that part of the world. And approximately the one I know, I think um, Jeddah race, was yearly $900 million to host it, plus the amount of money that they spend on building it. And it's supposedly (laughs) one of the most uh, hardest and interesting pists uh, Formula One right now has. In fact, that's why, again, you know, like, this is maybe people will go back and watch last season on uh, Drive to Survive after I say this, but because it was such a hard piss, that's, you know, what through, you know, Hamilton a little bit, and then that's why he lost uh, the competition at the end. There are a lot of details about, you know, like if people love those sharp turns and like danger and, you know, drivers getting too close to each other, which in I want to go back and like maybe, you know, wrap it up a little bit about that technicality of it. So yeah. this year is going to be very special for for the car, the new car that um formula one designed uh with help of aws and i think you wanted to talk about tech you know partnerships that is super important i think to mention uh, and and i don't know where you want to start but the new car is going to give the drivers maybe an advantage over the the last year's race because of they're going to be able to get closer to each other, but, you know, not, you know, maybe risk their lives or like risk losing the race. Hmm. It's like, there is some technical um, explanation to, to this. So um, the car was designed 70% faster than they would have (laughs) otherwise, thanks to these engineers who are running millions of millions of simulations to make sure that the body work design um, uh, works with the aerodynamics of the, of like the whole, I guess, I'm not that smart either, but the smarter people I spoke to explained to me, and they said that the downforce loss has been reduced from 50% to 15%. And that means more to more wheel action on the track, leading to a even more exciting race than ever before. So that's what people are looking forward to watch. But that's what's going to, you know, I think um, the the margin is going to get smaller and smaller for the for the drivers, and that's what makes a pist better than the other one too. Like wind conditions, like I said, rain, the cars, it's insane. I think it's just you know fascinating. For like um, car nerds like you know myself and others, I guess. Yeah, it's, it's another thing that American sports fans love is is danger or uh, adjacency <laughs> to danger in their in their <laughs> sports. So uh, you're you're speaking the right language there, Asla. I'll give you the last word here. Uh, what are you looking forward to? What are you, what are you curious about 
uh, heading into this weekend in Miami? Are you looking at tourism numbers? Are you looking at the viewership on, on, on ESPN? Is it kind of the reports back from people who are on the ground? What are you watching as we head into the weekend? I want to few things. I want to see, um, obviously, the, the revenue from the ticket sales, like how much the tickets were sold overnight, the regular tickets. Um, I think the cheapest ticket you could get a month ago was around $3,800. And they were like, you know, and and the prices go up from that too. So I think we're very interesting is going to be like compared to other races, how much more money Miami is going to make. And I think that's going to be what Miami Dolphins is going to be also um, considering and they're going to make money from food, you know, entertainment, obviously premium seating and all that stuff. Is it going to work out? Is Miami going to be able to handle that many people? Um, Because that's another question mark that I have in my mind. Miami is already saturated. There's too many people. I mean, I told you my parent, my dad um, immigrated to Miami. So we've been going back and forth since, you know, 2000s. And it was an empty, sleepy town when my dad moved there. And I loved it. It was just like in in the movies. And then it's so much has changed. There's a huge traffic problem, for example. So everybody's going to stay on the beach. They're going to go to Miami Gardens. The traffic is going to suck. And that's going to have to be resolved eventually if this is going to be a permanent location. Um, Brands, marketing, technology, like where is that going to be? How, like, you know, I'm sure we're going to see random acts of marketing around town. If not, it's already happening probably today, Wednesday. You know, everybody's down there already. Um, I don't know. Of course, I want to know who's going to win, but (laughs) (laughs) who doesn't? Um, But yeah, I'm very, very excited to understand if Miami can host this and be and succeed and also bring um, the lost revenues from the last two years of COVID impact on tourism. Well, there you go. Asla, I'm sure you'll be writing about all those things uh, at Sportico as they, as they unfold. This was fun. Thanks. Uh, thanks for joining us. Uh, that's Asla Pellet on Twitter at Asla, A-S-L-I underscore Pellet. I like that you have an underscore. I do too. I am on Twitter at Novi underscore Williams. Our producer is Matt Whitehurst. Shout out to Matt. Our digital media editor, Cora Veltman, wants you to know that you can download the show wherever you get your podcasts.